Welcome to episode 107, The Brain's Route of Survival, Complex Trauma and Personality Development, featuring Sherry Simmons, LCSW. Please note that this episode contains discussion of various traumas and may be upsetting for some listeners. The case vignette described herein was with express written permission. By Clearly Clinical, learn, grow, shine. Hello, everyone. My name is Sherry Simmons, and I'm an LCSW. Welcome to The Brain's Route of Survival, a podcast on complex trauma and personality development. I have been a therapist for my entire career, and over the last 30 years, I have run residential treatment centers, um, psychiatric hospitals, Uh, you name it, uh, when it comes to mental health, uh, in particular for adolescents and families. Um, I have run several different organizations. I'm a consultant for many treatment centers in Colorado. Uh, I wrote a book on trauma that I'll be referencing a little bit today. Um, I also have a podcast on the Mental Health News Radio Network, and I'm a speaker. And uh, when I'm not teaching uh, psychology classes, I uh, roam around the country and speak on this topic. Uh, Thank you for joining me uh, for the next hour. There's a lot of ways you could spend your time, and I appreciate you being with me. In this presentation, you're going to learn about the impact of trauma, of the brain circuit circuitry and personality development, and also how trauma can create coping strategies and mechanisms that may appear maladaptive, but that are actually rooted in survival. You will all learn interventions for how to effectively work with individuals who have a history of complex trauma. This presentation also includes a discussion about a specific case study which really highlights the the possible impact of trauma on an individual and the family system. I do have expressed permission from this person uh, to discuss a little bit about her story today. Um, And I need you all to know she is not a client of mine, but we'll dive into that later. Let's start by uh, talking about and acknowledging the fact that when our clients come to us, they're, they're telling us their story. They're allowing us into a very sacred part of who they are. And one of my favorite researchers, I'm sure you've heard of her, is Brene Brown, who said one time that loving ourselves throughout the process of owning our own story is the bravest thing that we will ever do. And, and, I, and I hope and I encourage when I talk to people, especially clinicians, that when we're meeting face-to-face with our clients or even in a group setting, that we're remembering the courage and the bravery that it takes to share even a snippet of our, our stories. Back in 1967, Jan moved from... Texas to Colorado. She was a young bride. She was 19 years old, had just gotten married, and she had chosen a husband who was possessive and controlling and very domineering of her. In fact, he made it very clear that she could not have a phone, a car, a job, and she also could not state her opinions. If she did, she would be sent back to Texas, and being sent back to Texas was scary for Jan. So she stayed in their trailer while her husband worked and made sure that dinner was on the table by 6 p.m. every night. She also made sure everything was clean and neat and tidy in the trailer. In those long hours that she spent alone, she would have these odd sensations, little snippets and scenes that would enter her mind uh, that she didn't quite understand, but they were terrifying to her. She didn't there were pieces of the scenes that looked familiar and pieces that were, were just flat out terrifying. And the only way that she could make them stop was to clean, clean a closet, clean it out again, reorganize it again, and then she could keep the flashes, the memories, whatever they were at, at bay. Well, life went on and she, Jan and her husband had two children, two little girls, 
Jan uh, started exhibiting some odd behaviors during when her children were young. She couldn't sleep anymore. She found herself feeling very anxious. And she would get up in the middle of the night and just watch over the girls sleeping. She had this looming feeling that they were going to be hurt. So she wanted to make sure that she could keep them safe. She also started to gain weight for no apparent reason. Uh, she was doing cleanses. She enrolled in Weight Watchers. She was going on diets. In fact, for one month, she ate nothing but lettuce and drank water with lemon. And she still continued to gain weight. Her doctor didn't understand what was going on with her. And so he sent her to a team of specialists in Denver who ran a battery of tests. They called her in after the test and said, Jan, it, it, is there anything, is there any kind of trauma that you've experienced in your life? Because we can't find anything wrong physically with you. Well, Jan naively uh, and very sweetly looked at them and said, no, not that I can remember. You know, I don't always remember living with my mother. My, my father died when I was some, somewhat of a young age. But other than that, no, I don't really remember any trauma in my life. Well, they didn't buy it, and so they encouraged her to get into therapy. She was a sweet Southern gal. She thanked them and threw the discharge, the discharge paperwork away on, the, on her way out the building. There was no way that she felt like she needed therapy. That was until the day that her eight-year-old daughter walked in the kitchen. Jan was busy cooking, had pots and pans in her hand. She turned around, she looked at her daughter, and she froze. The pots, the pans, the food fell to the floor, went everywhere. Jan couldn't move. She couldn't talk. You see, she didn't see the face of her daughter. She saw the face of her mother. And it was at that time that all of the pieces, the fragmented memories, the scenes in her mind started falling into place. She did get into therapy and the weight did come off within a month. I will tell you a little bit about what Jan remembered later in the podcast, but first we need to understand some things about the brain. And by the end of this podcast, you will be able to explain how the brain responds to attachment trauma. You'll be able to explain the interpretations of client resistance, and you'll be able to describe the development of personality traits and behaviors as they relate to basic survival strategies. All right, so let's dive in. Let's talk about the brain in very simple terms. It's, if we break the brain up into three segments, the prefrontal lobe <clears throat> being the, 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 the front part of our brain, the brain, the part of our brain that actually is not developed until we're around 25, some researchers are saying now around age of 30 when we can fully have our, our prefrontal lobe developed. This part of our brain is responsible for executive functioning, cause and effect reasoning, um, high level decision making, um, logical facts, all of that lives in the prefrontal lobe. And this part of our brain has a filtering system. Information and data and experiences flow through the filter in our prefrontal lobe so that we can spit out uh, our answer or a, a fact or a, a plan. It works kind of like this. If, if you were to go into the break room at your work and you see a glorious chocolate frosted donut sitting there, you might say something like this, oh man, I really deserve that donut. I've worked hard on this project, but I was going to go out tonight and have pie with my friend. Ugh, if I do both, that'll put 10 pounds on my hips. Okay, wait a minute. That's not, that's not how that works. Um, all right. It won't put 10 pounds on my hips, but um, it will take me off on my diet. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to have half the donut now, half a piece of pie tonight, and then I'll get back on my diet tomorrow. Boom. <laughs> That's how it works in the prefrontal lobe. Next, we have the neocortex part of our brain that is responsible for language and thoughts, mi million other tasks, but language and thoughts being the primary focus. 
And then at the back of our brain, we have the limbic system. Now, some people call this part of the brain the mammalian brain, the survival brain, the lizard brain. Uh, but for purposes of today, we'll call it the limbic system. And the limbic system is fully developed when we're born. The limbic system cares about one thing and one thing only, and that is our survival. And there are five survival mechanisms that live, I'm sorry, not five, six, six survival mechanisms that live in the limbic brain. We'll dissect those in just a minute. But the limbic brain believes everything that it's told, everything. So if the limbic system, as when you're young, is, is told that a cute little pink fairy comes into your room at night and takes your teeth and leaves your money, the limbic system says, oh, that's cool. Great. If the limbic system is shown that a relationship looks like mom and dad fighting and there's alcohol and somebody leaves angry and disappears for days and there's crying uh, and they're screaming, the limbic system says, ah, oh, got it. That's what a relationship looks like. If the limbic system is told you are fat, you are ugly, you are not worth my time, um, you, um, what you think doesn't matter, the food that you eat is weird, your skin is the wrong color, the limbic system says, duly noted. And therein lies our deep-seated unconscious beliefs that we often have to spend much of our adolescence and adulthood trying to reframe. These sort of, these messages run, they run in the background of what we do in our daily lives. They run in the background and inform us about what decisions we're going to make who we're attracted to. And frankly, as clinicians, they run in the background when we're working with our clients. All right, let's go back to the six reactions that live in the limbic brain. You've probably heard of the first three, fight, flight, and freeze. There's also faint, fornicate, and feed. So let's dissect all of those. Fight. Um, how many of you have ever been talking to someone, the interaction gets tense, it gets awkward, and the person that you're talking to starts hurling insults, um, gets very defensive, starts arguing, screaming at you? That's fight. That is the limbic system's way of saying, danger, 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 I don't feel safe right now, and I don't know how to let myself survive this moment other than to fight with you and push you away. All right, next we have flight. So that's when you're having a conversation with someone, it gets tense, it gets awkward, and the person leaves, leaves the conversation. Maybe they say something like, uh, you always do this, I'm out of here. And then they simply walk away, that's flight. Freeze. Freeze is the example that I gave you earlier. When Jan was in the kitchen and saw her eight-year-old daughter, she simply froze. She could not find the words. She could not find um, any actions. She just stood there. Faint. Faint can look like a couple of ways. Faint can look like literally fainting. It can also look like this. I had a, a client many, many years ago um, that was in a residential treatment facility that I was running. He was a very aggressive youth. He would put his head through pane glass windows. He would throw couches, very, you know, threaten other people, hit them. He was very, very aggressive. He came up to me one morning and started choking me because I asked him to make his bed. <laughs> uh, as he was choking me, I said to him, enough. He dropped his hands, he went to his bedroom, and he fell asleep for 18 hours. In fact, any time that he showed some form of aggressiveness, that is what he did. That is what he did to cope. He would go to his room and sleep for anywhere from 16 to 18 hours. That's another version of fainting. We also have fornicate, and fornicate is different than just porn addiction. It can also include excessive flirting, dressing seductively, um, 
having a, a lot of part, sexual partners, um, putting yourself in high-risk sexual situations, all those fall under fornicate. And then lastly, we have feed. Feed can look like um, binge eating. It can look like starving yourself. It can look like cutting or other self-harm behaviors, drinking, drugs, running away incessantly. It can look like um, working too much. You know, we've all heard the phrase workaholic. Um, it can look like working out at the gym excessively. Anything that is filling a void and taking on an addictive behavior falls under the category of feed. It's an emptiness that the limbic system is trying to fill. All of these survival mechanisms are the limbic system's way of saying, I don't feel safe and I don't know how to survive unless I do one of these things, fight, flight, freeze, faint, fornicate, or feed. All right. So the, the brain has, oh, I forgot to describe one other thing in the brain. So on either side of our brain, we have the amygdala and the hippocampus. And we know that the amygdala holds our emotions and that the hippocampus puts a timeline to those emotions. So if we go to a carnival and we see a bunch of, we see and hear a bunch of kids on a roller coaster, we might conjure up that same feeling, um, that drop in the stomach, the um, excitement when the roller coaster is going up uh, an incline before it's about to drop. We might hear the kids at the carnival squeal and yell and think back to a time in our lives when we were young and we were at a carnival. That's the amygdala saying, oh my gosh, this was such a wonderful feeling of excitement. And the hippocampus saying, and it happened when we were children. If you are experiencing PTSD or your clients are experiencing some form of PTSD, a carnival might look very different. You go to the carnival, you hear a balloon pop, and instead of hearing it as a balloon pop, you're hearing it as a gunshot, and you hit the ground and take cover. That's the amygdala taking in the experience in a fearful, terrifying way, and the hippocampus saying that, oh my gosh, we're under attack now. Okay, so the hippocampus is not able to separate the fact that you heard a gunshot earlier in your life when you were serving in the military and on the front lines or you were growing up in a gang infested neighborhood. Instead, the hippocampus is saying, nope, the, the threat is real now not back then. And we know that trauma work and PTSD work with our clients is really matching up the amygdala and the feelings with the hippocampus and the correct time frame. Okay, so our brain has neural pathways that look like uh, crevices. Um, some of them are deep canyons. They're, they're of varying depths and degrees. But we know that that these neural pathways allow our neurotransmitters to, to flow. Um, and if you go back to the example of the limbic brain where we grew up believing that we were no good, nobody wanted to be around us and not worth anyone's time, our neurotransmitters are going to flow down our neural pathways and inform us to probably gravitate towards and choose people who also believe that we are not worth their time uh, and they will treat us accordingly. The brain then works in such a way that, um, that, that it informs us that our initial belief was correct. And yep, these people in my life really don't value me. The belief that I heard when I was young is really true and therefore I really am not worth anyone's time. Okay, and it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy. The more that neural pathways are used and, and deep-seated beliefs are acted upon, the deeper our neural pathways become. The beauty of the work we do with our clients is that we get to create new neural pathways, 
a new belief system, a new way of thinking. Now we know when we introduce a new belief to our clients that they often jump back to the old ingrained belief and that it's, it's really a journey of sort of flipping back and forth between old and new neuropathways. But we also know that the more that we believe something that's new and act on a new, um, uh, well, a new belief system, a new action, the, the deeper that those neural pathways become as well. Researchers have shown, brain researchers have shown that, shown that uh, new neural pathways can be developed well into our 90s. So it's a beautiful thing to really think about how um, the brain is very, has neuroplasticity and can be reshaped and reformed in any given moment. What we know about the brain is that when we stress, we regress. Okay, let me say that again. When we stress, we regress. We become half of our chronological age. What I mean by that is that our behavior becomes our language like in a younger person. We can't access our prefrontal lobe because the blood isn't traveling there when we're stressed. The blood is traveling. Our, first of all, our limbic system is lit up and the blood is traveling to our extremities so that we can fight, flight, freeze, faint, fornicate, or feed. Our behavior becomes our language when we're stressed. All of us, our clients and ourselves, we can't help it. I am terrified of mice. Terrified doesn't even begin to describe how I feel about mice. Um, and at any given time, because I'm so scared of mice, I have decon boxes set out in my garage. About two years ago, there was a storm in Colorado and my driveway cracked overnight and, and sank down. And so mice had free reign of my garage through a hole the entire night. I went out in, in my garage to, in the morning to get my computer that was in my car. And there were dead mice everywhere. I was hysterical. I ran in the house. I grabbed my cell phone. This is early in the morning. I'm in my pajamas. I run out the front door and I called my mother who lives down the street. And I only had to say one word, mice. She said, I'll be right there. So when she drives up, I'm sitting on the curb, sort of rocking back and forth. I was, you know, curled into myself. I might have been sucking my thumb. I don't remember. It was all hazy. But she drives up, gets out of the car, and she says, you stay right there. I've got this. So she starts sweeping up mice, putting them in the trash can, washing down everything in my garage. Uh, then she sanitizes everything. This took her about 45 minutes. I'm still on the curb in my SpongeBob SpongeBob pajamas, rocking back and forth, um, not able to, to help her in any way. And she just comes over and sits next to me. She put her arm around me. After about 10 minutes, she said, I'm here. I'm here with, I'm here for you, for whatever you need right now. I was finally able to start making a plan to get my garage floor fixed, get my driveway fixed so that it didn't have the problem again with the mice. Had she done that when she first pulled up, there's no way I could have made a plan. There's no way. Think back to a time in your life when you were most stressed. Think back to what was most helpful for you. Was it the person who came over and said, oh my gosh, tell me everything. Tell me all the details. What happened? Let's write it out. Let's make a plan. Or was it the person who just said, I'm here. I brought you a cup of soup. I'll just sit with you for as long as you need. You see, when we have safety in our lives, we can move from our limbic brain to our prefrontal lobe, but only if we feel safe. This will be the job that you have with your clients to create safety, to create safety in the waiting room when they come in to see you, in your office, in your interaction with them. It's at this moment that I, that I often uh, 
talk about how to front load with clients. Um, when I'm meeting with a new client in my office for the first time, I ask them the front loaded question, what does safety feel like to you? What if we are talking about something that gets you emotionally dysregulated? How can I help ground you in the moment so I can bring you back to the present? Then we can launch into more of your story after the fact. What will it look like when you're starting to get emotionally dysregulated? Will you tap your foot? Does it look like your heart racing, your, your breathing becoming shallow? Um, what does it look like for you? So that when I see it in my office, I can ask you to pause for a minute and then we can get back to safety. What does safety look like? Does it look like you bringing in a picture of your little four-year-old? Because if so, I want a picture of your four-year-old in the office, in your file, so that I can pull out the picture and sort of bring you back to the present moment. Is it soft music? Is it a grounding breathing exercise that can bring you back to safety? Okay, you want to practice those things in your office with your clients so that they can start to practice it then in their, in their regular lives. Who else in our society cannot access their thoughts and their language? Babies. Babies and infants. Their behavior is their language, right? And how do we act with babies? We have a cadence to our voice. We lower the tone of our voice, we, we bring our body posture in, we're reassuring. We say things like, shh, 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 I've got you. I've got you. You're okay. You're safe. And we'll figure this out. We'll figure out what's wrong, but know that you're safe. I've got you. Right? That's how we respond to babies. And I often wonder, why do we not respond to the people in our lives that way? Why do, not, why do we not respond by showing our clients, our spouses, our roommates, whoever we're interacting with, that there's safety so that we can get to our prefrontal lobe, our, our wizard brain, and they can get to theirs? Because it's only in those moments that we can have a conversation with someone that is relevant and can bring about solutions. Only when we get to our prefrontal lobe. I don't know if you've heard this phrase before, the strongest central nervous system wins. Let me say that one again, because it's pretty important. The, the strongest central nervous system wins. What I mean by that is, if you are emotionally regulated in your offices with your clients, then you're the strongest central nervous system. But if you are emotionally dysregulated and triggered by what your clients are saying, then you become the strongest central nervous system in a different way, right? And one limbic system plays off of another limbic system. So let me give you an example of this. I told you I wrote a book on trauma. My next book is going to be on the airport, in the airport shuttle <laughs> or about the airport shuttle because I am fascinated by this mode of transportation. Here we are sitting in a circle. Everybody's staring at everybody. Okay, somebody gets on the airport shuttle and everybody stops what they're doing and looks at them, maybe checks out their luggage. I tend to check out their shoes because I'm into shoes. We all say hello to each other. I tend to say Sup, because I work with teenagers and that's how I talk. Um, and then we all sit there looking at each other and what do we do next? We get out our cell phones. We get out our cell phones, we start checking our emails, we start checking our messages because it gets kind of awkward. About a year ago, I was in the airport shuttle headed to the airport and it was packed. It was a packed shuttle and we were starting to slowly take, out of, take off, <coughs> roll out of the airport. I'm sorry, out of the parking lot. And as we're doing that, as we're inching along, I see a car barrel into the parking lot. I can hear her tires screeching. She parks into a slot right by where the shuttle is. And she gets out of her car quickly. She grabs her four-year-old. She grabs her luggage. And she starts knocking like this on the, air, on the outside of the vehicle. Driver, driver, please stop. Dri driver, stop. The driver stops. She gets on the shuttle in this sort of frantic way. She sits down. She looks at all of us and she says, hey, everybody, 
Um, I'm sorry to do this to you, but my flight is about to leave. So we need to go to Southwest first. I'm so sorry, but thank you. The driver says, ma'am, please sit down. We're not going to go to Southwest first. We do this in order. Uh, we, we start, you know, in the alphabetical order and Southwest is one of our last stops. She says, oh, great. <sighs> she starts breathing heavily. She starts tapping her foot. She's looking at her watch. She's nervously looking out the window. She says, guys, please, would you mind if we go to Southwest first? The driver says, ma'am, that is not how we do it. We go in alphabetical order. Please sit down. She's tapping her foot. She's nervous. She looks at her son and she says, well, I guess you're not going to get to see grandma and grandpa. The, the air in the, the shuttle was tense. It was awkward. It was anxious. She kept standing up. She kept staring out the window. Her poor son was a nervous wreck. She was shaking. I'll tell you what, by the time we got to the airport, all of us were looking at our watches, tapping our feet, looking out the window. I was a nervous wreck. Not going to lie, it took a king-sized Snickers bar and the entire flight for me to finally calm down from that shuttle ride. That was the strongest central nervous system. She took over the entire shuttle, and we were all responding to her nervous system. I don't know how many of you saw the interview a while back with Gail King and R. Kelly. R. Kelly... Um, singer, musician being, being accused of, of several um, assaults of women and, and rapes and, and all kinds of things. And Gail King was interviewing him and he lost it. It's a fascinating interview to look up on YouTube because he's standing up and he's screaming and he's, you know, got his finger in the camera and he's spitting everywhere. Gail King sits there calmly and just breathes. After a while, she says, Mr. Kelly, please sit down. He's screaming, he's going off on a tangent. Mr. Kelly, please sit down. You're safe here and I want to hear from you. He then starts to deescalate, sits down and has the interview with her. She was the strongest central nervous system in the room and it took him a minute, but he was able to regulate to her breathing and her central nervous system. You see, people in our lives will regulate to the point that we are regulated. Our clients, people in our lives will regulate to the point that we are emotionally regulated, okay? I wanna throw out something else that you may or may not have heard. Connection before correction. Let me say that one again. Connection before correction. There must be connection before we can correct someone. Connection to ourselves, to our own breathing, to our own groundedness, connection to the other person, then there can be correction. When you are having a conversation with someone and it gets tense and it gets awkward and you notice that either you are retreating to your limbic brain because you're stressed or they are retreating to their limbic brain because they're stressed. Allow yourself a moment to connect to your own breathing. Encourage them to connect to what makes them feel safe. Maybe it's, hey, I, I sense right now that, that you're getting emotionally dysregulated. How about we go back to what we talked about when you first started coming into my office and that picture of the beach that you visited last year. Tell me about the, the beach. Tell me about what the sand felt like. What did the sun feel like? Oh my gosh, I can almost feel the breeze now. Can you feel it? That's a way to provide safety for someone in an office setting where they can, can sort of come back to their prefrontal lobe and then, and then talked with you about the rest of their memory or the rest of, you know, whatever it is they're talking about in the office. If it's an interaction that you're having with someone at the dinner table and it starts to get tense and awkward and you start to see the, the, the fight, flight, freeze, faint, fornicate, or feed in another person or, or even in yourself, that's a good time to say, you know what, let's take a minute. 
time out for a second. I see that we're both getting escalated. Let's, let's put a pin in this discussion for five minutes and just breathe or just listen, light a candle, listen to some music, maybe finish our meal and then come back to this when we're, when we're both a little bit more regulated. That's what I mean about connection before correction. All right, um, I wanna talk a bit here before we get back to the story of Jan. I wanna talk for a minute about um, the way in which we're triggered. Um, we all have triggers. Um, they will probably always and forever be in our lives. Um, when we are triggered, we have physical cues. So when we're triggered and we, we go to our limbic brains, there's something physically that tends to happen in us. Maybe it's our heart racing. Maybe it's our jaw clenching. Then we have thoughts about uh, whatever it is that's going on in the situation. Um, then we have emotions. Then we have actions then we have consequences. So if you look at these as an as a iceberg, all right, with our, our triggers and our um, physical cues above the waterline, maybe even some of our feelings, our thoughts and feelings above the waterline, underneath the waterline, is the, the largest part of our iceberg, and that's our, our deep-seated thoughts our beliefs, our experiences, those all live at the bottom of our icebergs, right? And, and with our clients, it takes a while to be able to get to the underneath part of, our, of their iceberg and really dissect what's going on with them. Because our clients will typically come to us and talk about the surface level things first, right? Until they feel safe. It's the same way in our relationships. It's the same way when two people start colliding. If you think of two icebergs that are colliding, where are they colliding? They're colliding and hitting each other at the bottom, okay? At the ocean's, at the ocean's bottom where experiences, beliefs, um, uh, triggers uh, bad, bad experiences live. That's where people tend to clash with each other. And you go up the iceberg and there are our, our thoughts and, and our feelings and emotions. And then we've got the waterline and we've got our cues, our physical cues, what happens in us physically. And then we've got the two tips of the iceberg, which are the, the results Okay, and a lot of times clients come into us because they're fighting with each other or they're not getting along or they're feeling discomfort with another person. And the tips of the icebergs are miles apart from each other. And that is typically what clients want to come in and resolve are the results that, again, are miles away from each other when really the work is down way below the water surface in the experiences and the beliefs and where people are colliding with each other. So let's get back to the story of Jan because um, Jan's iceberg looked like this. Um, she was often triggered by uh, anyone who was threatening or um, dismissive of her, um, anybody who uh, said mean things to her was a trigger. And she would respond by freezing, by getting, you know, her, her breathing would get shallow. She would literally freeze. Um, her thoughts were, this person's going to hurt me. Um, and I'm terrified. You know, the, the emotions that came up were terror, were fear. Um, her actions, like I said, she would freeze or she would shut down. And then the results of that were she never got many things resolved in her life because, because she just shut down out of fear. This is why she allowed her husband to, to really dominate and, and control her and, and you know, allow his, his abusiveness. When Jan started therapy, I told you that the weight came off within the first month. And the reason that the weight came off in the first month is because she started piecing together some of those fragmented scenes that she had. When Jan was a little girl, her, her father died. Um, and actually, he died of a brain aneurysm suddenly when she was three years old. Her, she was left in the care of her mother. 
and her mother started binge drinking um, heavily during the day. Uh, family members were very concerned about this, and so they took her brother, who was older, and raised him, but they left Jan. And there's a lot of speculation as to why, but nobody really knows for sure. So Jan was left with her mother, and her mother became very abusive when she was drinking. Um, she would hit her, burn her, cage her, um, leave her in the home at a very young age, four and five, uh, with, for days at a time with no food. Um, Jan's mother would bring in men that uh, would also abuse Jan, both physically and sexually. Her mother helped participate in these events. The police department stepped in when Jan was, was young and talked to her mother and said, hey, we, we know that you're leaving your daughter um, for days at a time. The neighbors are complaining that she's walking around barefoot trying to find food. You need to, you need to be home more. The way that Jan's mother um, decided to deal with this was to start taking Jan with her uh, on her excursions to the bars. Um, Jan would be made to sit in the floorboard of the car um, for hours with no food, no, no bathroom. Uh, or she'd take her into the bar and put her under the table uh, for hours while, while she drank with her friends. Finally, um, the state stepped in and, and took Jan uh, to the hospital. She uh, had a kidney infection. She had uh, bones that had been broken that weren't healed correctly. She was malnourished. So she stayed in the hospital for several weeks until she recovered. Jan was excited because she thought she'd get to go home. Um, they didn't bring her home. They brought her to the orphanage, to an, to an orphanage. Um, and, and frankly, this is where the real abuse began for Jan. Here she had lost her dad. She'd lost her mother. She had lost her brother. She'd lost her home. When she went to the orphanage, all of her belongings were set out on the floor. Her dresses, her clothes, her dolls, her toys, and all of the other children in the orphanage got to rummage through and pick what they wanted. So the last bit of what Jan had um, was now being taken from her. And, and this is where she, she hits a low point in her life. Um, in this particular orphanage, there were 200 children and 199 plates, cups, spoons, and forks. Um, the idea behind this is that the child who didn't have a plate at dinner um, needed to learn how to stand up for themselves. Well, this was usually, this child was usually Jan, and, and she didn't know how to stand up for herself. Um, she had been raised to be quiet and hide under her bed and hide in the closet when her mom was drinking. The orphanage had uh, visiting hours every Sunday, and Jan would forego any meals or any bathroom breaks and sit on the top of the fence waiting every Sunday for someone to come and visit her or come and get her. No one ever did, not for, not for eight years. So she remained in this orphanage. Um, and and was traumatized there. She, she wet the bed during the time that she was there. Um, she was beaten for this and made to, to wash out her sheets in the, in the faucet and hang them up um, so that everybody could see and make fun of her. Um, the children were made to change beds each night. So they had to move. They were, the, the beds were set up sort of dormitory style and the children were made to move to the next bed each night so that they didn't get attached to anything. The only thing that allowed Jan to survive all of those years, especially the years in the orphanage, was a trunk, a trunk full of jewels that only she had the key to. And at night when the children went to bed, she would get up out of her bed and unlock the trunk and take out all of these shiny jewels, um, diamonds and bracelets and earrings and lay them out on the floor and decide which ones were going to her mother when her mother came to visit, uh, which ones she would give to her aunts when they came to visit her. She'd watch them sparkle in the moonlight and then put them away and lock them back up 
and move her trunk to the next bed each night and do the same ritual again. Let me ask you this, and you can answer in your own way as you're listening to this podcast. What do you think Jan's diagnosis would have been? If this file had come across my desk, I definitely would have diagnosed Jan with with PTSD, maybe depression, maybe anxiety, um, maybe a myriad of other of other diagnoses as I really dug in. The prognosis for Jan would have looked fairly bleak given the extreme abuse, abandonment, and neglect that she experienced. Um, I probably would have said that her prognosis didn't look very positive, frankly. Let me ask you this. Do you think her trunk was real? Well, I can tell you that it was not. You see, Jan is my mother. And I'm the eight-year-old who walked into the kitchen when she was not remembering all the pieces of her past. My mother wrote the book, Which Way, with me. Um, We travel together and speak on it. My mother is a true survivor of complex PTSD. Um, Her brain made up that trunk. And I remember being an adolescent as she was working through therapy. She was in therapy for years with a wonderful therapist uh, who finally confronted her about the trunk. My mother believed that that trunk was real until she was in her middle adulthood. And when her therapist said, well, Jan, if everything was taken from you, how did you get all of those jewels? My mother said, well, um, I don't know. I don't know how I got them. And that was a breaking point for my mother where she, she had to realize that her brain had made all of that up as a survival skill. It symbolized her worth and her value. And if she no longer had the trunk and the trunk wasn't real, well, then she didn't have any value or worth. And so thus began uh, a journey with her therapist in, in helping her really um, discover what her worth and her value was and what it meant. This therapist was wonderful with my mother and taught her many techniques to to self-soothe and um, to sort of take her voice back, to own her own story to the point that she could write about it and speak about it one day. You know, if we, if we look at the human needs, we, we all have physical needs. We know that, shelter, food. But we also have um, emotional needs. And different presenters present differently on these needs. Um, I think that our human needs are safety, freedom, connection, worth, control, and predictability. When Jan grew up, she didn't have any of these needs met. Um, but but I talk to my mom a lot now about what her needs were back then as a child, what her needs are now as an adult, and how she can really start to, to meet those needs for herself. When I work with clients, I encourage them to look at the emotional need that is beneath the anger, okay? So I believe that every behavior is born out of an emotional need, every behavior, is born out of an emotional need. So if we look at a three-year-old temper tantruming in the grocery store because she can't have cocoa puffs, what need is she trying to express? If every behavior is an expression of need, is she trying to express safety, freedom, maybe, Uh, control, maybe? Um, Let's look at the 14-year-old who's sneaking out of his house at night to smoke pot with his friends. What emotional need is he trying to express? Is it safety? Maybe. Freedom? Probably. Connection? Probably. Worth? Maybe. Control? Maybe. Predictability? Possibly. I, I really encourage people to look at what the emotional need is because when we're doing that, we're addressing the, the need rather than the behavior, okay? And it, it puts things in perspective a little bit, especially for parents, uh, parents that come to see me about their children. 
The other thing that it does is if we are analyzing what somebody's emotional need is that they're trying to express, we are in our prefrontal lobe, which is exactly where we need to be. We are in our wizard brain rather than our lizard brain. I want to go over just a couple techniques here. Um, but, but let me first talk about trauma-ingrained therapy, our trauma-ingrained facilities, trauma-ingrained clinics. You know, we started talking about trauma-informed care back in the 80s, and it's wonderful. We, we started getting fidgets for our clients to, um, to, to handle when they were talking about something that was difficult in our offices. We got sand trays, we got weighted blankets, we piped in soft music into our facilities where our children or our adults were living. Um, we did things to really help provide safety for the client. And I think all of that is important and we need to, to incorporate all of that into our practice. Trauma ingrained care is something very different. Trauma-informed is about the client. Trauma-ingrained is about us and how we are with our clients and if we are emotionally uh, regulated. Trauma-ingrained is about relationships. It's about how we are presenting to our clients. Are we, our clients coming into our waiting room and hearing this? Hello, please uh, sign in and somebody take a seat in the waiting room. Somebody will be with you in a minute. Or... Are our clients experiencing, hello, Richard, I'm glad you're here. I know you're here to see Linda today. And Linda is one of my very close colleagues. She is very, very good at the work that she does. Uh, you're in good hands today. Uh, why don't you sign in, take a seat. There's a water bottle over there. Uh, let me know if you want the radio station changed. Um, and we'll be with you just as soon as we possibly can. There's a, different, there's a difference in those two things, okay? One is setting the stage for safety. What if we, when our clients left our offices, said, hey, we I would really like your opinions about um, how this office should look or how we can, as a program, um, really invite in uh, more uh, diversified um, artwork or, or how we can incorporate uh, more safety into the work that we do. I, your, your opinion matters to me. Okay, that's, that's about relationship setting. That's about creating safety for our clients in a very different way. The other thing that, that helps us become trauma ingrained is understanding resistance. I don't know how many times I've heard in my, in my work over the years, this client is resistive. I don't know how many times I've read it in case files that this client is resistant to treatment. I'd like to reframe the way that we talk about resistance. What is beautiful, what is insightful about somebody who is not um, taking good care of their hygiene? What is beautiful, what is insightful about someone who's aggressive? What is beautiful, what is insightful about somebody who uh, refuses to work on their treatment goals? There is insight in being able to dissect why a client is behaving the way that they are. First of all, they're, they're in their limbic brain. Second of all, they're trying to express an emotional need. And third of all, they know, each they know themselves well enough to know how to survive. Okay, by keeping people at a distance, by um, setting boundaries, although they may be in maladaptive ways uh, that, that they're setting boundaries, they're, they're trying to survive. And there's insight in that. I wish as clinicians, we would start to have those conversations with each other instead of this client's resistive and won't work. I'd like to leave you with um, a tool. It's, it's a simple tool, and it's probably one that you heard about when you were first going to undergrad school. It's called MVE, Mirror, Validate, and Empathize. It's such a simple tool that we don't use enough as, cl as clinicians, and it offers safety for another person to be heard. So it looks like this. You are talking to someone and they say something. Let's say they, they say to you, um, uh, I can't stand coming in here for, for therapy. And it's obvious you're just here for a paycheck. You would mirror back exactly what you heard. 
So it would sound like this. What I'm hearing you say is that you hate coming in here for therapy and I'm just here for a paycheck. All right, the validate portion of that will sound like this. What makes sense to me about that is fill in the blank. So in this scenario, it's what makes sense to me about that is you are tired of telling your story over and over. And I am here to get paid. That is part of my job. The empathy part of it sounds like this. I imagine you must feel fill in the blank. So in this scenario, and I imagine you must feel frustrated. Now, your client or the person in your life might shoot back and say, I'm not frustrated. I'm ticked off and I wish you were dead. Yikes. That's a tough one. I've heard that one many a time in working in the adolescent uh, treatment facilities that I've been in. You would mirror it back. What I'm hearing you say is that you're not frustrated. You're ticked off and you wish I was dead. And what makes sense to me about that is you don't want to be here right now having this conversation. You want this to end. And I imagine you must feel really emotional right now. So you see how it works. It can go on for as long as it needs to. It is not a tool that gets anything resolved. It is a tool to help your client or whoever you're talking to feel safer. You see, by mirroring with someone, you're telling them that you see them. By validating them, you're telling them that you hear them. By empathizing, you're saying that you understand them. And to a client or another person, that equals the fact that they exist. All right, so I want to end here by talking a little bit about self-care. Self-care um, is something that uh, in this field we've got to practice all day, every day, throughout the day. So if you work out at the gym after work, that's fantastic, and it's not enough. It's not enough in this field because our, the beauty of the clients that we work with is that they get to unpack some of their trauma and some of what they've gone through. But where, do, where does all of that go? Who is the only other person in the room? It's you. And so some of that will stick. It just will. And the people in your life will start to see it. They will start to see the little bits and pieces of your work that has been stuck to you. So self-care has to become something that is practiced all throughout the day so that you're literally taking those bits and pieces and unsticking them from yourself. I have a phrase that I put on my phone and it alerts me three times a day. And the question or the phrase is this, what does taking care of myself look like right now? And that pops up on my, on my um, little phone screen three times a day so that I can remind myself that I need to ask that question. What does taking care of myself look like right now? Maybe it's a cup of tea. Maybe it's deep breathing. Maybe it's to disconnect from the computer for a minute. Maybe it's to walk around and get some fresh air. Maybe it's to do some stretches. If I'm incorporating self-care throughout my entire day, then I am able to stay emotionally regulated for my clients when I need to be. It's the 99% versus the 1% rule. If you're practicing something 99% of the time, you're able to use it the 1% that you really need it. So that is the conclusion of my podcast today. Um, my mother is okay. She really is. She has learned how to survive her past she has learned how to use her voice. She did get away from the abusive relationship she was in with my father. And when we travel around, we speak a lot about the epigenetics component of her trauma being transferred to me in my DNA and something now that I have to work through. Um, epigenetics, as you may or may not know, is the study of um, you know all of us walking around with with ten to twelve generations of DNA and other, our ancestors' trauma within us that often gets played out in our own lives, and that we have to reconcile um, so that it doesn't interfere with our own relationships or our own clinical work. So. Um, so my mom is okay. She really is. She does suffer from PTSD still. Uh, when she hears a baby cry, um, 
she used to just not even be like in a restaurant if the baby was crying, she wouldn't be able to finish her meal and she would have a panic attack. And through therapy, she's been able to um, really change her self-talk and understand that the baby may be crying because he or she is hungry or wet or tired, not necessarily because he or she is being abused. And so um, even though my mom still has to go seek out the baby and make sure that the baby is okay, she's able to, um, to move from her limbic system and her survival brain to her prefrontal lobe fairly quickly now. Uh, thank you. Thank you for joining me today. I can be found on www.thetraumaspeakers.com. Uh, my email address is Sherry Simmons Speaks at gmail.com. So that's spelled S H A R I S I M M O N S P is in Paul E A K S at gmail.com. But, but visit me, um, visit us at the, the trauma speakers.com. Um, our book is for sale on our website and also on Amazon. Uh, and it's called which way. I appreciate you listening to me today. I hope this podcast was helpful. If you'd like to reach out, I can let you know about other upcoming trainings or resources that I have available to you. Best of luck to all of you in the work that you do. Be the strongest central nervous system. Thank you. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.